From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republican voters react to the State of the Union on this, the day the Senate decides whether to acquit the president. Also, does the caucus meltdown in Iowa cause concern for the Colorado Democratic Party? Then, for a project on distracted driving, we stood at busy intersections. Looking at people, mostly looking at their phones. It's pretty easy to see what people are doing, and people aren't really trying to hide if they're on their phones, i found. Do people get stopped for this kind of behavior? Later, he went to prison as a teen, then got clemency as an adult. In his new life, Curtis Brooks says it's hard to make friends. The typical reaction that I face is, I feel bad for you that you went through that, and then those people immediately vanish, and I don't hear anything from them ever again. When freedom is complicated. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is a momentous political time. Later today, the Senate will vote on whether to remove President Trump from office, a vote that's virtually assured to fail. Last night, the president stood in the U.S. House to tout his accomplishments in the State of the Union speech, the last of his term. CPR politics reporter Andrew Kenny joined a Republican watch party south of Denver to hear what people there thought of the speech. Andy, good morning. Hello. Set the scene for us. This was the official watch party organized by Metro GOP chapters, right? That's right. It was by the Denver and Arapahoe County GOPs, and it was crowded. Uh, this restaurant probably had room for 100 people. I would bet there were 120 in there, turning people away probably half an hour before the speech. Once you got up there... Folks crammed in there, booze going around, a President Trump cardboard cutout, pins and hats. Uh, had some real energy in there. Why do you think the party wanted to have this gathering? Well, they've done this in the past. It's obviously a, an annual event. But this year, it was kind of a moment of catharsis for some folks coming out of impeachment and going into the election. Oh, and into the vote today. How Correct. was their overall reaction to the speech, Andy? Uh, A lot of these people have seen plenty of Trump speeches in the past, and as far as a Trump speech goes, this one was not too too surprising. You know, it wasn't like a a rally where he might have gone on an extended tangent. He stuck tightly to the script. But for a lot of folks, it was, again, the, the timing of seeing the president sum up what he described as his accomplishments and his goals. So for those folks... uh, you know, it was it was really pretty exciting. Here's Lawrence Deppenbush of Centennial. I thought it was dynamite. I thought it was great. He made some unbelievable points. He really threw down the gauntlet. Were there particular topics that the crowd really reacted to? Maybe something that tells us about the 2020 race, you know? Uh, these first two will not surprise you. When he started going on gun rights, that got one of the largest uh, applause lines of the night on immigration, especially when he started talking about increasing enforcement and laying out crimes that he said were committed by immigrants. Again, quite a reaction. But also, um, you know, he touched on health care and the economy as well. And those were quite popular, too. Yeah, let me just say that while there have been economic gains under this administration, uh, much of the fact-checking this morning, you know, articles uh, from the Washington Post, NPR, show some exaggerations in the economic realm, maybe a lack of acknowledgement of the rebounding economy under the previous administration. Uh, What did you hear particularly on health care? I'm interested because we've been hearing that as a top issue for uh, folks of all political stripes. Yeah. So on healthcare, you heard him acknowledging some of the same goals that you actually hear at the state level from Democrats as well, which would include trying to target prescription drug prices, trying to drive costs down. 
But where they really sharply divided was Trump went out of his way to warn that, you know, as you often hear from Republicans, the Democrats are trying to socialize health care, as he put it. And that really fired the crowd up as well. I'm curious if there were any parts of the State of the Union that seemed not to land with that crowd. Um, you know, pretty much everything got applause where expected, but his plan to go to the moon did not exactly blow the room up. He got a smattering of applause. It wasn't exactly Kennedy saying that they were going to go to the moon by 69. It's interesting. Colorado has a lot of connections to any potential future moon and Mars missions. So that's a big issue here, though. Yeah. And I would say that the Space Force segment, including the Tuskegee Airmen uh, and his grandson or great-grandson was more of an applause line than the moon project. When you talk to people at that GOP gathering, I imagine you asked about impeachment. What were they thinking about the vote coming up today? I think a lot of people were ready to be done with it. Impeachment has obviously been a months-long exploration of what the uh, president did or didn't do in terms of trying to coerce Ukraine into investigating his uh, his rivals. And for people at that speech, uh, for people at the watch party, they were done with it. They were dismissive. Here's Chris Webster of Centennial. I feel like the impeachment's going to be irrelevant tomorrow. I feel like it has been irrelevant to most of the country, but I feel like it'll be wrapped up and done tomorrow. Trump apparently refused to shake House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's hand at the start of the speech, and then she made a point of tearing up his speech when he finished. Uh, did the crowd react to either of those actions? Uh, the tearing of the speech, you can imagine, was not exactly a gesture that was aimed at this crowd, and they were fuming afterward. Uh, Trump did not win Colorado in 2016. What were people at this watch party saying about his chances in the upcoming election? Uh, when I asked about that, it kind of showed that, you know, especially in Colorado, Republicans are very, like Republicans everywhere, fired up right now. He, Trump has 94% approval among Republicans about his chances for the presidency, but very few people seem to think that he was going to take Colorado or that he had a realistic chance. So they're feeling very optimistic nationally and somewhat pessimistic at the state level. Andy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. CPR's Andrew Kenny, part of the team covering state and national politics. He was at that watch party. So it's been a debacle for Iowa Democrats this week. And what, if anything, does the meltdown with the caucuses mean for Colorado's caucuses, which take place March 7th, State Party Chair Morgan Carroll is here. Morgan, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, before we talk about Iowa, was it appropriate for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to rip up President Trump's State of the Union speech? What did you make of that? You know, in usual times, probably not. But it's interesting that we would expect her to hold to a decorum that has long since gone out the window with everything that Trump says or does. And I can't really falter for that reaction. So you think this is a tone the president has set? You think that Speaker Pelosi is following it? Is she right to follow in that tone? Oh, um, I think a lot of us would like to see a point going back to where we can actually bring some integrity to the institutions and have some mutual respect for what was there. But I, I think in this environment that she's operating in, that was mild compared to the disrespects that the entire institutions have been shown by the president of the United States. Okay, let's talk about what happened in Iowa. What, if anything, it portends for Colorado. First of all, folks may be thinking, wait, there are caucuses in Colorado. I thought we were a super Tuesday primary state now. We are. That's March 3rd. But on March 7th, both Democrats and Republican caucus um, goers uh, will gather for down ballot races, including the U.S. Senate. Will 
Colorado use the same app that Iowa did? No. <laughs> so to be very clear, we're not using any app and we're not using this app. So while um, I think we're all feeling the pain of what we've seen come out of Iowa, uh, as you mentioned, people will be voting for president in a primary in Colorado. So that's a big difference. And then when we do proceed to have our caucuses, we do still caucus for every other race on yeah. Saturday, we're going to be using tried and true methods, which are basically calling and using good old Google forms for getting information in. I will say that it has prompted us to want to stress test our own reporting systems a little bit more just to make sure um, but we will not be experimenting with any untested technology on caucus day okay. on Saturday the 7th. And you never had plans to. We it's didn't. not that you d changed we didn't. some sort of approach. Uh, were you ever approached, though, by the app company Shadow, whose CEO is based in Denver? Just curious. No. No. Okay. I actually didn't realize their CEO is uh, based in Denver. So. For us, we basically will have a two-step reporting process where the site locations will each report to their counties. We have 64 counties in Colorado, and those 64 counties will be reporting to the state. And then we will put it on a website and share that information with the candidates in the press. What has emerged uh, in the kind of autopsy of what happened in Iowa is that training of volunteers was lacking. Uh, does this make you look at that? Because this is very much a volunteer-based system, isn't it? Yes, thank you for acknowledging that. Caucuses are run entirely by volunteers. And what sounds good in a development context has to have the end user in mind. And in this case, our volunteers cover every age bracket, every geographic background, every skill set you can imagine. And so you need to have a system that can work for your entire range of volunteers. So we will be doing additional training. We already had training all the way down to caucus site organizers. We have more than one reporting option. So for people who are more comfortable with a phone, we've got a recorded phone. We're keeping paperwork. And for those who feel comfortable using a, a Google sheet, we'll take the reporting results that way. So it sounds like there is a paper backup. Do I have that right? You do. Okay. Uh, what is your understanding as to why Colorado kept caucuses at all? You know, it's appointment politics. You got to be there at a certain time in a certain place. And the criticism, of course, is that that excludes people. Why this hybrid system of a Super Tuesday primary and then down ballot caucuses for both parties? In the most literal sense, it's because the ballot measure that passed that switched us from presidential caucus to presidential primary did not include any of the down ticket. It could have. Uh, we in the Democratic Party have had a group looking at a caucus and assembly reform commission that have a range of opinions from abolish caucus entirely uh -huh. to just improve the caucus process. But the most important point about caucus, the most positive piece of it is the face-to-face -face community interaction part. The most uh, I guess the weakest part of a caucus system is if you have low turnout because so many important decisions are made beyond president that if you care at all about who gets on the ballot and who you want to vote for and how you organize in a movement you want to show up and if you don't have a high turnout um, it distorts the process. It appears in Iowa that turnout was lower than expected. Uh, even before all the technology problems, uh, a Washington Post columnist, Karen Tumulty, said 
that is the most important Iowa result and Democrats should worry. What do you make of the apparent low turnout in Iowa? Are you concerned about Democratic turnout in Colorado? I think Colorado is going to be higher than 2018, but probably lower than 2016, because the presidential race is usually the top driver for what gets people to go to caucus. So given that people will be caucusing in Colorado for the U.S. Senate race and all the down ballot, we really hope that everybody goes to their local caucus. But because presidential campaigns are no longer the top of that, we expect we'll have more than 18, but probably less than 16 in are, Colorado. Are you worried about the turnout in Iowa? No. Why not? Um, well, I don't have enough data yet to know what the final numbers really are there. Um, I think caucus for a lot of people is an archaic system. And energy going into this election cannot be fully captured by caucus turnout alone. Morgan Carroll, she chairs the state Democratic Party, Colorado's presidential primary. Once again, Tuesday, March 3rd, then both major parties hold their caucuses for down ballot races Saturday, March 7th. When we come back, the consequences of distracted driving. Senator Michael Bennett is going all in in New Hampshire. He staked his presidential campaign on a February surprise, a strong showing at the first in the nation primary. I'm going to spend a lot of time here, and the, and the way I'm going to win it is by being in living room after living room after living room after living room. I'm Caitlin Kim with CPR News. As voters in New Hampshire take to the polls, we'll be on the ground to hear how Bennett is faring and how he stacks up to the other Democratic presidential contenders. Tune in to CPR News or CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm on this sidewalk just outside our studios at 17th and Grant in Denver, and I'm watching cars pass. And here with me, my colleague Donna Bryson of Denverite. She and the Denverite team did just what I'm doing now, watching cars pass. Hi, Donna. Hello. Why were you watching cars pass? We were trying to get a handle on distracted driving in Denver, so we went out all over town. I was in Baker. We had colleagues in the Northeast and in the South and downtown looking at people, mostly looking at their phones. It was rush hour. Uh, spent an hour at rush hour on some pretty busy streets. But it's pretty easy to see what people are doing. And people aren't really trying to hide if they're on their phones, I've found. I have to say, I, I've been guilty of this in the past. Have you? I have been guilty of this. And that whole experience made me think, um, I don't need to. <laughs> I can put my phone in my purse in the back seat. That has to be away from me, maybe. And did you see anything besides phones? I did. I saw one woman doing something with a vape pen with both hands. I think she must have been steering with her knees, I'm guessing. Kevin saw one person giving him a rude gesture. <laughs> we saw people eating, people drinking. Kevin is Kevin Beatty, who's on the Denverite team. Well, you know, he was staring. It's not polite to stare. Maybe that's why they were flipping him off. And he had his camera, so he was noticed. I think the rest of us were a lot more under the radar. Why were you looking out for distracted driving? Well, it's part of a larger story we're looking at to see what the laws are on distracted driving and how they're enforced, how dangerous it is. And those are all questions that my colleague Dave Sachs has really been looking into to go along with our observations. We observe like scientists do to add to his story. David Sachs, indeed, you've been crunching the numbers. What did you find out? 
Last year was Denver's deadliest since 2000 as far as traveling around the city goes. 71 people were killed in cars while biking, motorcycling, scooting, and walking Hmm. around the city. More than 500 crashes resulted in life-changing injuries, and that's a telling statistic because close calls can go either way. And guess how many people Denver police cited for driving while being distracted by their phones? In a year? In a year. Um, I don't know, 300. Five. Five? Okay. Only five people cited for distracted driving in the city of Denver in a year. Given what the Denverite team observed at those five intersections, it does seem like a low number. What's the thinking on that? Well, according to the Denver Police Department, the law was invoked 44 times over the last two years, five times in 2019 and 39 in 2018. So those previous years had quite a few more. Could, could they say why? That seems so lopsided, you know? Yeah, the Denver Police Department could not really say why that was. But I did talk to uh, Lieutenant Robert Rock, who heads Denver's Crash Investigation Unit, uh, as well as the District Attorney's Office in Denver. And they say officers often choose not to use the distracted driving statute because a more serious crime was involved. Ah. It might have been careless driving resulting in death or injury, for instance, or drunk driving. But cops and prosecutors can obviously go after people for more than one thing if they want. Donna, back to the Denverite team's observations out on the street. Um, you didn't see any crashes at the five intersections you staked out, but w- what did police say about the rest of the city? Yes, yeah, so I checked with police and they say nowhere in town that day was anyone cited under the distracted driving statute in a crash. Um, and they specified crash, which I think is interesting. You're not just going to get cited for distracted driving. You're going to get cited if there's a crash that might come up or if a police officer sees you distracted, maybe on your phone and driving badly. Okay. So just paying attention to my phone is not in and of itself a violation? It's not going to get you cited at any rate. Okay. Colorado does have a no texting while driving law, right? Well, this is the law we're talking about. So it's no texting while driving at all. Uh, For young drivers, drivers under 18, it's not using your phone at all while you're driving. Uh, What is the penalty if I am charged with distracted driving? Yes, in the unlikely event that you get cited, you could face a $50 fine. You could face jail time if you hurt someone or if you kill someone in a crash because you were distracted driving. And you will also get four points on your license, which is about a third of what it takes to lose your license. Okay. And it is a secondary offense. So as Dave was describing earlier, that it has to be related to something else that's happening. Uh, that's that's why you say you're not going to necessarily get pulled over just for that. It has to be kind of accessory to something. Yes, as a lot puts it, careless and imprudent driving, bad driving, I said. <laughs> <laughs> David, um, for this observation that Denver I did, how did the team define distracted driving for itself? So we counted distracted drivers as anyone who visibly was using their phone or other devices. Um, so anything, maybe the, the vaping pen like that Donna saw. Exactly. Like okay. anything that took their eyes off of the road. Now, there is a national definition that's used for studies that includes anyone on a hands-free device. Oh, so, like a, over Bluetooth? Bluetooth. They, they would oh. consider that distracted driving because your mind isn't focused on the road, even if your eyes are. Huh. I think we probably undercounted uh, because there's just no way of knowing. I mean, there's tinted windows. There's a lot of different problems. Uh, Walk us through a standard crash investigation, David. I mean, how do police know if a phone was involved? I've often wondered this. Like, would they grab my phone and say, this accident happened at around 4.02, and at 4.01, you texted, you know, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? They would not grab your phone. They can't grab your phone. Uh, Usually they don't know if somebody uh, was texting just before a crash. And I think that's new information for a lot of people. 
Lieutenant Rock said each crash investigation is different, but my reporting found that officers rarely pursue hard evidence as to whether a cell phone was being used just before a collision because of privacy concerns. Oh, so they might be relying on witnesses who see that you were on your phone or maybe the other driver or the pedestrian or something? Yeah, cops can ask motorists if they were using a device and they can go to a witness uh, and people can volunteer their phones if they want, but they don't have to comply if a, if a police officer asks huh. to see their phone. And now I know there's an effort in the state legislature to do something about distracted driving. Tell us about that. Yeah, Representative Dylan Roberts, he's a Democrat from Eagle, is co-sponsoring a stricter distracted driving bill at the Capitol this session. It would require motorists to use a phone's speaker function or other hands-free devices. Okay, even though that's not the perfect solution as we've explored. Right. Uh, The key here is that distracted driving would be a primary offense under this bill, meaning police could use the law to pull people over before they drive dangerously or crash. Ah, I know that Roberts is the deputy district attorney in Eagle County, right? Yeah, so he's seen hundreds of gruesome details about crashes come across his desk. Um, Is there opposition to a measure like that? Yes. Uh, Colorado's chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, is concerned that pulling people over uh, for looking at their cell phones is a slippery slope that will become pretext for harassing people of color. That's what Denise Maez told me. She's policy director for ACLU Colorado. Uh, And she notes that there's little proof that hands-free driving laws make roads safer. Dave, I know the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety studies this. What do they find? Yeah, they study it each year. And while they find that hands-free laws reduce the use of cell phones, it does not necessarily reduce crashes. Huh. That's interesting. So people might be on their phones less when they're driving, but it doesn't mean crashes are wiped away clean. Right. And that's because things other than cell phones can distract drivers. Okay. So you you put your phone down and something else is in your hand. Right. But Lieutenant Rock told me a huge reason for the lack of evidence is the lack of data. Because if officers don't know when distracted driving is happening, and when they do know, sometimes they don't write it down, how can we really know how big the problem is? That is the the tracking of it, inputting it into the system each time. Right. It's Uh, a data problem. It's a data problem. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. David Sachs and Donna Bryson of Denverite, part of CPR News. Their team has been looking into distracted driving, and you can read their full reporting at CPR.org or Denverite.com. Okay, the best advice during snowstorms is stay off the roads, but that's not always feasible. Mark Cox runs the Bridgestone Winter Driving School in Steamboat. He says, leave room on the road and don't be deceived by all-wheel drive. A lot of people gain a false sense of confidence with all-wheel drive because they mash the gas pedal and the car leaps forward because four wheels are pulling, not two, and they don't spin, so it overcomes driver error. So they instantly assume that all-wheel drive corners and stops that much better as well, and that's not the case. It doesn't matter how many wheels propel the vehicle forward when it comes to braking or cornering. Hmm. So all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive is doing very little for you when it comes to the stopping, which is ever so important. It's absolutely no different than a rear-wheel drive or a front-wheel drive. And in some cases, you could actually make the case that it's worse because an all-wheel drive vehicle is a little heavier, so it's more mass to stop. Does it help you with handling at all? It can help you in certain corrections. Um, For example, skid corrections. All-wheel drive does allow you to make, if you will, a mistake during the correction and still works. Beyond that, really, no, it, it really doesn't, other than acceleration. 
That is Mark Cox. He heads the Bridgestone Winter Driving School in Steamboat Springs. We often trot that interview out when there's fresh snow on the ground. Such a good reminder. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. Mornings can be stressful. Wake up, make breakfast, get yourself ready to take on the day. But there's an easy way to add some relief to your morning routine. Hi, I'm David Ginder, morning host on CPR Classical, here to help you start your day with beauty and ease. All you have to do is ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. Or to catch up on the news you've missed, say, play CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is at your command anytime, hands-free, with your smart speaker. An update on the story of a man incarcerated at 15 who thought he'd spend his life in prison. Curtis Brooks, now 40, was granted clemency in 2018 by former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Brooks was released in July. With the new year, we wanted to check in on him. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been following this case. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. You interviewed Brooks when he was in prison. You went back when he was released. And now this picture of his new life. Why have you focused on this case in particular, though? Well, Brooks is one of hundreds around the country who were kids when they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Much of this started in the 1990s when violent crime was rising. And the system's answer was to put lots of people behind bars, and that included juveniles. Now, a couple of decades later, a lot's changed for these kids. They're now adults. Yeah, what has changed and why? The U.S. Supreme Court has been chipping away at harsh sentences for juveniles. In 2012, justices ruled that automatic sentences of life without parole for juveniles is unconstitutional. The court cited research that juvenile brains are less developed than adults and they lack a full understanding of consequences. Research shows their brains are more capable of change, meaning rehabilitation. Curtis Brooks and others are now being released into a world they've never lived in as adults. They've never had a full-time job, had to pay rent. Some haven't driven a car. And I think that's why these stories are so fascinating. What is that reintegration like? Another aspect of the Brooks case and some of the others, Andrea, is that they were at the scene of a murder, but they didn't pull the trigger. Right. Brooks was convicted of felony murder, and that can mean someone's found guilty of first-degree murder if they were at the scene of a crime but didn't use the deadly weapon. Brooks was involved in a 1995 robbery in Aurora. He was with some other boys when they decided to steal a car, but it didn't go as planned, and one of the boys shot and killed the victim, 24-year-old Christopher Ramos. So to be clear, if the same thing had happened today, the sentence could be very different. Right. And Colorado lawmakers are actually now considering changing the law so that anyone convicted of felony murder, adults too, can't get these life without parole sentences. Now, in Brooks' case in 2018, uh, then-Governor Hickenlooper granted clemency. Other cases have made their way through the courts. So as we said, a lot of these juvenile offenders, now adults, are getting out. Yeah, Brooks, as we said, was released in July. I saw him take his first steps outside of the Lyman Correctional Facility southeast of Denver. I remember it was a hot day. It felt unusually humid, and his attorney had brought him shorts and a shirt to wear. 
Brooks was then paroled to Maryland, where he grew up and has family. And for now, he lives with his grandmother. And you just talked to Brooks to see what his first six months or so have been like. Yeah, I was curious to see how he's doing, what it's like to finally be outside of the prison routine and figuring out life in 2020 versus 1995. I asked what he appreciates most about his new life, even something that might seem trivial. And he said nothing is trivial to him right now. Everything is still new and fresh for me, even the days which aren't so great. I have an appreciation for those rather than sitting in a prison cell right now. Just the freedom to wake up in the morning and say, okay, how do I want my life's direction to go? Uh, Sometimes it can be overwhelming because you get presented with so much stuff, but just having that opportunity to choose your life's direction is a big thing for me. The day I reached Brooks, he just started a new job at a law firm that does lobbying. He doesn't know yet what he'll be working on. Um, I should say Brooks is self-educated. He took a lot of classes in prison. He got into philosophy and studied several foreign languages. So I think that could help him in the working world. Okay. He seems to be settling in. What has been the toughest thing for Curtis Brooks to adjust to, do you think? He says making friends is hard. Some people know his story. He's been in the media. He's been profiled in a documentary. And he says those people are understanding, but it's different when he meets others. At some point, I will always let people know exactly who I am, what my circumstances are, out of fairness to them, to know who it is that they're dealing with. And the typical reaction that I face is... I feel bad for you that you went through that. You know, that's not something that concerns me. And then those people immediately vanish and I don't hear anything from them ever again. Mm. So it's almost like they convey that it's fine and it doesn't matter to them, but then they disappear. Yeah, almost in a non-confrontational, they don't want to be honest about what their feelings are or their initial reaction is it's no big deal and they pull it up on their phone and look into the details, and then decide that that's not something that they want or were willing to accept in their lives. Brooks told me he understands their reaction, doesn't fault them, but it's made it hard to get close to people. Right. I mean, essentially, he gets ghosted. I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. the term we'd use today. I, I often think so often, Andrea, about the changes in technology. You know, he went to prison when portable CD players were all the rage and came out when my phone does just about everything. Right. Curtis is technically inclined to begin with, so I think he's adjusted pretty quickly. He's become a huge gamer since he's been out. That makes some sense to me. I mean, if it's hard to make new friends, he might turn to the online world. Right. But even when he connects with people online, he says he tells them about his past and they back away, too. He also shares a sense a lot of us have that the Internet can be really isolating And he has a unique perspective, having lived without technology for so long. There's not much access to it in prison unless devices are snuck in. I think it's meant a potential disconnect as people delve more into the virtual side of things that brings about a different reality for interacting with people that doesn't necessarily always translate to the personal face-to-face human relations and interactions. That's the voice of Curtis Brooks. We're getting an update on his case from CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Brooks went into prison as a very young man, got clemency, and has been released. In general, Andrea, about half of inmates released from Colorado prisons end up back inside. So does Brooks have any concerns about that happening to him? Recidivism is high in the state, but Brooks isn't concerned. He's determined to live a good life and make up for his crime. 
I'll note here, though, that the family of his victim, Christopher Ramos, is not happy that he's out. They released a statement through the district attorney's office when Brooks was granted clemency, and it said, quote, Christopher did nothing to have his life taken, and he does not get a second chance at life. But in terms of Brooks' chances of succeeding, he's lucky that he has quite a bit of support from his own family and from others in Maryland who had advocated for his release. But he thinks there are really good reasons so many people wind up back in prison after they get out. You know, recidivism is high, not just because individuals come out of prison with, you know, this mindset that they're just criminals and they're not going to change and they don't care what anybody thinks. You have a lot of people who come out of prison without the tools to succeed, and they're put in a position where once they start to fail, they don't know anything else but to devolve themselves back down into what they were doing before because it's the easy win. Brooks has a lot of ideas to reform the justice system. Generally, he thinks corrections needs to focus more on rehabilitation, less on punishment. He's been invited to come to Colorado soon to talk with lawmakers, and he hopes to meet with the head of corrections here, Dean Williams. Williams talks a lot about reform, including doing a better job of preparing inmates for release. He says it's a public safety issue since most will eventually get out of prison. Did Curtis Brooks mention any specifics about what he'd you know, suggest policy-wise. He wants to talk to Williams about an idea a buddy of his had in prison, the friend still inside. The idea is to give inmates a chance at a special unit where they have much more freedom. You take the individuals who want to apply for this unit, not to be restricted by sentence or anything else, and you give them an opportunity to live almost as though they were released on parole. You live in this unit, you have your responsibilities with your work assignments, you have a curfew that you have to meet up with, you have a parole officer who you have to keep your meetings with, keep informed on your daily activities. It provides a a setting that's different than to just wake up, go eat, stay out of trouble, go to sleep and repeat. Allow people to grow and change and be better citizens when they come out instead of coming out with nothing completely unprepared. But people might balk that that kind of freedom would be extended to inmates no matter they're sentenced. I mean, I I suppose that he is focused on good behavior. Is he saying, though, that offenders would go into the community like during the day? No, but he is saying in other ways this would mirror what it's like to be on parole. And it isn't a far-fetched idea. As you know, we spoke with Dean Williams on the show in October. Again, he's the head of the State Department of Corrections. Before that, he ran corrections in Alaska. And he said he's all about work release. You should be working before you get out. Working off-site. Working off-site. Come back to the prison at night. Work during the day, prison at night. Is that safe? For the rest it, of the community. It is safe. And I did it in Alaska last year. We did it there for several years, working there and coming back to the prison at night. Williams refers to this type of approach as normalization, which is already used elsewhere in Norway, for instance. Curtis Brooks also talked about the dads he knew in prison and the need to help them reintegrate with their children. He thinks they need more opportunities to get reacquainted before they get out and have to deal with real-world responsibilities. Andrea, thanks for this update. Sure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, she's been following the Curtis Brooks case for years. Brooks was released from prison just over six months ago at age 39. He'd been behind bars since he was 15. 
Brooks was sentenced to life without parole for his part in a murder and later got clemency. Tomorrow, perspective on when children become adults. What does brain science tell us about when someone is old enough to really understand consequences from the courtroom to the battlefield? It's often said that Colorado is one of the first states to give women the vote. And that's a reference to 1893 when voters here passed a referendum on women's suffrage. We made a passing reference to this history in a story last week. We were talking about the fact that Colorado's never elected a woman as U.S. senator. Listener Elizabeth Epps of Greenwood Village cringes every time she hears the history shorthanded as Colorado giving women the vote. What rubs me the wrong way about it and what rubs me the wrong way every time I hear someone mention the phrase women getting the right to vote is that almost always what they actually mean, even if they aren't aware of it, is they mean white women. And a couple things that are problematic about that. One is it's really pretty remarkable when it happened in Colorado and then when it happened with the 19th Amendment for white women to get the right to vote. That was a big deal. But every time we say women, it does two things. It defaults to assuming that the generic, the default woman is white, and it very actively erases both the existence of women of color and all their contributions to the suffrage movement. And so Epps thinks we ought to be using different language. Like an easy way that I think to say it is to say, um, instead of saying, you know, women first got the right to vote, is to say the first groups of women or the first set of women, you know, something that acknowledges It's still a huge deal. It's just not women. It's just not all women. We wanted to learn more about the uneven rollout of women's suffrage. So we reached History Colorado and its chief operating officer, Don DePrince. She's actually helping organize the Women's Vote Centennial commemoration this year. Don, nice to see you again. You too, Ryan. And I would just like to have you reflect on what we heard from our listener. She makes an excellent point, and it's one that we try to make all the time when we do this commemoration work around the Women's Vote Centennial, that in 1893, the all-male voters of Colorado ended gender discrimination in voting, which is very different than saying all women suddenly had the right to vote. Was it that black women, women of color in general, were left out? Help us understand the dynamics. Well, there continued to be, even after 1920, in Colorado and throughout the country, practices and policies that continue to exclude people based on ethnicity and race from voting. You say 1920 because that's when the 19th Amendment passed. Yes, yes. uh, Which is to say the change at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But it's often that laws change and things take time in the real world. What did that look like in Colorado, across the country, for people who were not white? Yeah, there are a number of laws in place, including the Chinese Exclusion Act, policies and practices at the federal level, of course, that disallowed Native American women from voting. And we know of poll taxes that existed, I mean, up until the, what, 1950s, 60s? Really, it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that all of those things were legally by the Supreme Court outlawed. Was the suffrage movement in its earliest forms, was it a kind of racist movement? Yeah, there are lots of accounts of women that were in the suffrage movement who use racist practices to convince men that women's suffrage was the right choice. 
Give me an example. What do you mean? Uh, you know, one of the things that they like to explain was that this was a way to dilute the African-American vote. If you had more white women voting, it would, in fact, impact, you know, the number of white people who were voting. Oh, I see. Versus African-American males to that point. Yes. Yes. Ah. So you're about to tell the story of suffrage uh, through the centennial. And to what extent will you elevate women of color who were suffragists. We're doing an entire series of speakers and investigations and exhibits um, that explore all the complexity of suffrage in this country. One of the great, you know, grandmothers to the story here in Colorado is an African-American woman named Elizabeth Ensley. And she is this incredible, you know, woman that was able to organize African-American women here in Denver, you know, taught them how to register to vote. She was part of the larger effort, but then also used it to organize African-American women here in Denver. Elizabeth Ensley, I understand that you know some about her, but that there's a lot still to learn. Yes, we would love to know much more about Elizabeth Ensley. We've been trying to locate papers, her letters, her artifacts, archives related to her life and the work that she's done here in Colorado. Okay, you're on the hunt for this. Yes. The word has been spread. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being with us and exploring this complicated history with us. Yes, thank you. Don Prince of History Colorado adding perspective on women's suffrage in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. And a quick update now. We told you last week about a bill in the state legislature that would allow communities to enact their own plastic bans. There's a law that currently prohibits that. It's the ban on bans, you might remember. Well, last night, this legislation failed in committee. The bill had support from environmental groups and the Colorado Municipal League, but chain restaurants and stores feared the legal patchwork they'd have to navigate when it came to plastics. Since the 1940s, volunteer groups have helped rescue hikers and climbers in peril in remote mountain settings. But a growing number of emergency calls is putting pressure on these elite mountaineers who put their lives on the line. CPR's Grace Hood reports that lawmakers are looking to help. If you want to understand how vital Colorado's all-volunteer search and rescue groups are, consider the story of climber Chris Klinga. It was April 2008. He and his climbing partner headed up a steep route on Red Garden Wall in El Dorado Canyon outside of Boulder. Above him, his climbing partner grabbed onto a rock 20 feet above. All of a sudden, a 300-pound coffee table-sized rock came tumbling down. At that time, the rock fell with him, and then I was able to arrest his fall, so stop him from falling. That rock left his climbing partner with a lacerated liver and more minor injuries. It broke Klinga's pelvis and both legs in multiple places. Eventually, a third climber in the area called 911. When Andrew Hildner and Rocky Mountain Rescue Group showed up, it was up to them to figure out how to get Klinga off the mountain. It took every trick in the book. Volunteer rescuers had to determine how to safely remove the rock on top of Klinga. Then they had to lower him down an unstable rock field. Kind of every rescue system that we have to get the patient safely off the, the cliff face and then down to the waiting ambulance. Klinga's total hospital bills were $1.2 million dollars. The price tag of the elaborate multi-hour rescue? Zero dollars. 
Hildner and Rocky Mountain Rescue in Boulder says every time 911 funnels calls to them, volunteers spring into action free of charge. We are seeing more and more technical rescues for, for rock climbing. However, that being said, uh, 60% of our rescues are still for everyday hikers. So this isn't just something for kind of extreme athletes doing extreme things. Most of these are isolated lower extremity injuries from just hiking around. Rocky Mountain Rescue and other similar organizations believe free rescue is critical. Adding costs could delay 911 calls, which would put volunteers at even greater risk. But as more people move to Colorado to enjoy the outdoors, calls are up. Rocky Mountain averages about 200 calls a year. That makes it one of the busiest all-volunteer-run organizations in the country. State Senator Carrie Donovan of Vail says lawmakers are looking at how to help. It can be 10 below. It can be the middle of the night. And they start to be the people that, that go in to help people that are in emergency situations out in the woods. Donovan introduced legislation to identify what stresses this puts on volunteer-run organizations. How many calls are coming in across the state? Do teams have enough equipment? A second goal of the bill is to offer training for groups on the psychological stresses of backcountry rescue. If we are, as a state, going to encourage people to come and play, we also need to support the people that are going to help people come and play safely. So eventually it is going to be about funding search and rescue. In the future, Donovan wants to find these groups more money. There are funding streams that search and rescue groups can tap into. Hikers can buy a $3 card that goes into the Colorado Search and Rescue Fund. But it's not well known. Today, climber Chris Klinga now has an American Alpine Club membership, which also offers rescue benefits. You know, to be where I'm at today, and and I'm so thankful for what happened. I know it sounds kind of sick and twisted, but... I would never be where I am today if that hadn't happened. Klinga is 99% back to where he was before the accident, and he's still climbing. In the coming weeks, Colorado lawmakers will discuss how to best revive the state's tax search and rescue teams so they can serve future generations. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Two parks in Colorado want to be the next to get dark sky designations. Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado and Jackson Lake State Park in northeast Colorado. The Denver Post reports that both are applying with the International Dark Sky Association. If they're selected, they follow Colorado's most recent designee, the Great Sand Dunes, which was picked last year. I spoke with longtime ranger Fred Bunch in May about what it means to be a dark sky park. Fred, it's interesting. You're a resources manager. I guess light and darkness, that's a resource, would you say? Oh, very much. Half the park is after dark, as we say, and dark night skies allow for uh, animals and uh, other living things that are active at night. And particularly at the dunes, when it gets so hot during the day, many, many of the creatures are nocturnal. And then the cultural part of it is the stories. Every culture across the world have tales that come from the heavens. Help me understand what it looks like at the sand dunes at night when I look up at the sky. You stand in silent amazement when you look up at the night skies over great sand dunes because you can see stars, the order of magnitude you couldn't even think about in a city or an area where there's light pollution. And so you look at into the depths of the heavens. It's almost indescribable, the awe that you get when you look in the night sky. Now, help me understand, is the great sand dunes now a international dark sky park 
simply because it's never really had light pollution? Or have you taken steps to, like, reduce the light pollution at the park? We have taken steps to reduce the external lighting, put it on motion sensors, lower the amperage. And so that's one piece of it. The other parts of it are that you have to measure the night sky through sky quality meters to actually show how dark it is. And the third part of that is we have to reach out to the public and inform them about the benefits of dark night skies. Ah, I see. So part of this is an education campaign that will continue as people visit the park. This is fascinating. You have to measure the darkness. That's right. There's a, an instrument that we use when there's no moon or, uh, and it's clear skies. We can go out and, and do readings. And some of our readings are almost to the capacity of what the instruments can read. Now, I understand you have with you a volunteer who helped make this happen, Fred. Who are you going to pass the phone over to? Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Bully, an engineer, and he's volunteered for us for several years, and we couldn't have done this without him. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Why was this important to you? It, um, the world's population, we have lost our ability to see the heavens at night. NASA estimates that only 17% of Americans can see our home galaxy, the Milky Way, from their home locations. But parks like Great Sand Dunes offer a refuge where people can reconnect with the night sky. And this is important. The light bulb, the incandescent light bulb that Edison invented, the first commercial light bulb, was invented in 1879. That is 140 years ago. All life on Earth, plant life, animal life, human life, insect life, evolved hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years before the light bulb changed our world. And we're struggling to adapt. Wildlife is struggling to adapt, and humans are struggling to adapt. Wow, I've never quite heard it put that way. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Bob Boley there, along with Fred Bunch, Chief of Resources Management at Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve. It was deemed an international dark sky park last year. Two more parks in Colorado are vying for the designation, Mesa Verde National Park and Jackson Lake State Park. Hopefully we've shed some light on the news today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Mm-hmm.